Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners across the country and across the ocean, across the borders, and across the universe, I'm sure. everywhere and of course our podcast listeners you can find the podcast if you only catch part of the show or if you're busy and you don't want to miss something go ahead and check out greenmajority.ca for that as well uh, i am partially co-hostless today i am of course your host Saren Kaster. stefan is uh not i was going to say mia he's not missing he's just not here um but he we have virtual stefan stefan uh as um provided us with a pre-record today talking to our dear friend rob shirky from our horizon uh that interviews about half the show today and so we'll be breaking uh, for that about halfway through. Uh, In the first half of the program however we have a little bit of news uh, that we're going to talk to but first we're actually going to start with our guest which is a little bit unusual for us. We have first of all it's unusual we have two guests it's unusual we we start from the guest start with the guest Uh, but Nina Montano was kind enough to uh, agree to start because she she might help me out with some of the news we'll see how it goes as well but uh, let me get it get her in right there. Nina welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Glad so to be here. We actually bumped into, as, as, as probably is actually shockingly common, I bumped into you at somewhere else, uh, got to talking and turned out that, that you'd make a good guest for the program. So I'm so glad that we were able to work this out. And of course, the timing is perfect. Yeah. Uh, you are a Canadian ecologist and internationally published uh, novelist of science fiction and fantasy, uh, has many novels, uh, some award-winning uh, short stories as well, articles, books, uh, and is just a very committed writer. Uh, the quote I, I believe am. on your website is, to write right to live ah uh, yes it is <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking and actually i've forgotten actually what the event was you maybe you can remind me but uh, you were at i believe it was a water event that you came into the center for social innovation for is that right yeah i'm trying to remember what it was <laughs> it was a few, it was a few months ago but we <laughs> no, agreed you know, that it was it was a writing event yeah oh, it was right yeah, of course that's go. what it was um and but we agreed that uh, now would be a good time to talk to you because of course uh I, is it your most recent is water is it is yeah. And uh, and so we were talking about that, and, and I saw you brought uh, some of that material with you as well. So that's um, uh, a book. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the uh, the the audience and what's in there. Of course, it's a it's a mix, like much of your writing, of history and science and philosophy and spirituality yeah. and, and a number of things. And I'm I'm very much a, a big picture sort of whole view sort of person, so that very much appeals to me. Tell us a little bit about the book. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a huge book for one thing. <laughs> if you've seen the real thing. Um, it's it's a catch-all for essentially it's a biography of water mm. and it's parsed out into 12 chapters and each chapter answers the question water is water is this water is that and the first chapter is magic mm. water is magic then life then gets into the science of things because that's my background I'm a limnologist that's somebody who studies fresh water and then it sort of goes into hum- humanist things, social things, uh, spirituality. So there's water is joy, water is wisdom, water is vibration, prayer, etc. So I, I bring in uh, stories about water. I mean, we are totally connected to water, right? We wouldn't be alive if it weren't for water. But it's, it's ironic that we know so little about it. Even those who study water know little about it. There's an old uh, D.H. Lawrence quote. Um, water is two parts, is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. But there's a third part to water, and nobody knows what it is. <laughs> and funnily enough, the water scientists today still don't know what that third part is. It's a very simple molecule, H2O, and yet it has amazing properties, uh, many anomalous properties that we're still trying to figure out um, what it's about. 
Mm. And one of the um, interesting things about it, as we, sorry, we've mentioned, but I want to point it out is particularly interesting, which is the it's you know there are there are a lot of books on water. There's a lot of books on lots of topics, yeah. um, and they generally stick to their silo, right? So you'll generally you can pick up like a science book or a, a spirituality book, but they're rarely combined. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe you can give some examples? But can you but, but begin by telling me why you decided to mush it all together? Yeah, and it is mushed all together. It's almost like a a concordance of mm. Bible, if you will, for water, because you can literally open it up and you know you don't know what you're going to find. It's, it's like uh, in Forrest Gump, you know, the, the <laughs> box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And you open it up and you get a little story, a little vignette about something. And it could be, like you mentioned, spirituality. It could be this, could be that. Uh, it could have a lot of books right now on water are well, how shall I put it? They're dire, right? They're talking mm. about water scarcity, water politics, all the nasties that are going on. And they're, they're pretty negative, and they're often prescriptive, which mm. is good. <clears throat> so they'll, they'll be telling you what you should do. But there are a few books that just celebrate water, and that's where I came from initially. I wanted to celebrate water. Um, the other part of the story is I'm a scientist. I'm a water scientist. I've been studying water for 20, 20 odd years, zooming around in boats and taking water samples and doing all kinds of cool stuff, and then relating that back to real science, to traditional science. In the meantime, all these weird things were coming around. Like I was saying, there's a third part to water that we don't know what it is. There's something called weird water science. And it is sort of on the edge of being considered not science. Mm. So there's a lot of controversy about things. And here's an example. Water has memory. Well, does it or doesn't it? And it depends on how you define memory. So there's a controversy around that. There's a controversy around homeopathy, which involves water. Uh, water is a quantum uh, substance. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's, you know, discussed. And it seems like the European scientists are willing to go that direction and the North American scientists are calling it quasi-science or non-science or there's a word for it. Pseudo Pseudoscience. Pseudoscience, say, yeah. that's the one. So here I am, a traditional scientist, a limnologist with a degree, several degrees, and I wasn't willing to break away from that because if I knew if I did, I'd be, you know... <laughs> Uh, regarded rather a heretic. So um, it took a while, and then eventually I just had to do it. So it was a courageous move on my part. It was taking a risk, and in fact, I have been called that by some people. But there you go. So this this book originally was going to be a textbook, and now it's turned into something more. Mm. You you made me think of um, a story, and uh, long-time listeners of the show will have heard me say this before, but uh, it's been a while, so I'll say it again, uh, which is a similar story. One of my personal uh, heroes is Carl Sagan. I have a Carl Sagan tattoo on my arm, hey. and uh, and that was very much part of, I mean, he was like, one of the ways I've described him to people too young to know who he is was he was the original Bill Nye, yes. uh, which was that, you know, he was a hard scientist in the sense that he, you know, had lots of degrees and studied some really complicated stuff at a very high level. Uh, but his passion in life was really education. And back when Carl Sagan started, he was essentially ostracized by yeah. 
exactly. his entire community and by all of his colleagues uh, at the time, not for because they thought what he was studying was pseudoscience, but because they thought it was beneath the dignity of a scientist to bother sharing this yes. stuff. They wouldn't yeah. understand. What do you, and, it's beneath and, your dignity. And to make it understandable. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing, to make it understandable. And this is what David Suzuki's doing as well. And he was totally shunned by his community. So I, I knew that. And I thought, I got to do this. I have to do this. And that is at the root of this book. It's, it's meant for everybody and anybody. And in fact, everybody and anybody can get something out of it. They'll just open it up somewhere. Okay, maybe the quantum science, maybe they won't quite get. But even that, if I understand it, believe me, you'll understand it. And that's mm. the whole point. I have to put it through the Nina filter. <laughs> and if Nina understands it, then you will. Guaranteed, <laughs> guaranteed. So um, I make quantum science understandable. Ha, ha, that's my challenge. <laughs> I'm going to resist the overwhelming temptation to talk about quantum mechanics now. Okay. Um, because it's a little bit off topic, but boy, maybe we'll start another show. We'll have you back. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's another pet hobby of mine is that stuff. But um, so talk to me a little bit about um, the intended audience. So who, who are you writing for generally, like with this book, but also like more generally, like yeah. who are you thinking of when you, when you write? Great question, because I wanted to segue into that. And that comes back to the, the really bottom line reason why I wrote this particular book. And it, it contains, every chapter contains really personal stories about me. My personal stories with water, how I connected to water. Funnily enough, when I put this together, I did a lot of research on it, despite the fact that I, I know a lot of stuff already, but I still a lot of research, right? So as I'm researching, I'm realizing that all the m- really important things in my life were connected to water. So I bring, I bring those in as anecdotes. And that's how I start most of my chapters. I bring my personal stories in. And that is the intent of this book, is to connect any reader to something personal in their lives with water so that they are ultimately connected somehow. Because the idea behind that is unless you're connected, you're not going to care, and you're not going to act, period. So we can talk all those prescriptive books, right? You must do this, you must do that, you know, water scarce and this and that, and shut off all your taps and, you know, go after your government, blah, blah, blah. No one's going to do anything unless they're somehow connected mm. and they have a personal, like a personal stake and they care. And that's why this book, which is full of, wonderful things about water and wonderful experiences of water doesn't focus on all that nasty stuff although I bring it in I talk about the Aral Sea and I talk about uh, the oceans and what's going on there but I just touch on those things the the key is how do we relate to water which is why the subtitle is what it is the meaning of water so to get back to it who's the intended audience it's it's everybody and anybody who needs to connect to water somehow. And that's basically everybody. Mm-hmm. So the audience is large. And I'm hoping that uh, people who are even environmentally active and you know think about the environment, and Canadians presumably do. On a poll, they were presumably put that as their top thing. But to actually go from the interest to the doing is uh, an important step. And that's, that's often missing. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that this book will nudge them in that direction. 
we were uh, just as a brief uh, brief uh, side story that's relevant. Yeah, last night I was hosting uh, an event for World, uh, World Water Day. Day. Uh, yeah. it was, um, we had our the guest was on last week. If people were interested to, you know, I think they're going to try and do another one. It was very successful. Excellent. Um, but we had a, a speaker, uh, Ray John Jr., uh, uh, who's an, an indigenous teacher who connects people oh. with between spirituality yes. and the arts. Are you yes. familiar with Ray John? Uh, so he was really great, and and what I learned from him, I mean. I didn't. I didn't learn any stuff, science stuff about the environment from him, right? He didn't. I. I wouldn't say that, like you know, I got an education from him about like yeah. data or things. What I. What. But I felt his his talk was very valuable because I mean he wasn't trying to do those things, right? So it's not like right. he he didn't succeed at his intention. Is that his intention? I think was to remind us very much why it mattered. That exactly. why those things mattered. Why it and mattered. that I feel like he did an excellent yeah. job of. And yeah. it was sort of like, yeah, I I know a lot of stuff about this stuff, but. But motivation is the other factor that exactly. sometimes we can get beaten down. You know the the why of things, mm-hmm. and hence the subtitle, the meaning of water. Right? What does it mean to you? For each of these chapters, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And that I think that's what's missing a lot of the times. And we're bombarded, totally bombarded with information, knowledge, prescriptions. Thou shalt do this. You know, blah blah blah, and arguments about that. But the subliminal, the the argument underneath. The why, you know, why should it matter to me, is missing often. And that's kind of left out. That becomes a subtext. And it's nice when it comes, comes, you know, to the surface. And the indigenous people, they get it. They get it. I mean, water is life. Um, and we need to kind of go in that direction. It, it'd be nice if we could. <laughs> And so there's, uh, it's actually uh, really good, the topical. We're going to um, switch to, to news now uh, in a minute. We'll go to a short break. Nina, you're going to stick around. I don't know if you'll jump in or not. We haven't, we'll see what happens. All right. uh, but Nina will continue to be in this in the studio. But a lot of what we're going to, um, a lot of what the news focuses around today is action. It's around activism and around uh, what's going on right now. And so I think it was a perfect introduction to that is to remind people uh, why to care. <laughs> so yeah. that when we tell you what those actions are, are uh, in a little bit, you're, you're reminded of the motivation. So thank you. I think that Excellent. was perfect. Thank you. thank you, Nina. So we're going to go now to our uh, first music break. We'll come back. It's going to be pretty short. We'll come back. We'll talk about a little bit of news uh, uh, with Nina here in the studio at CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, if you're listening live, if not, you might be listening on one of our uh, wonderful and very appreciated radio partners or on the podcast, which uh, along with the show notes can be found at greenmajority.ca. We'll be right back. And this is Alex Goodman Trio with Let's Cool One. All right, we are back. Very short music break today because we got a lot to get to. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, just going to run through a little bit of news here. Um, Nina may or may not jump in. Our guest from the first section has agreed. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, if you can make mm-hmm noises, okay. just so it seems like I'm talking to someone, that <laughs> would make me more comfortable. Okay, I'll, I can do that. <laughs> or, ooh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever mm-hmm. occurs to you. Uh, so the fir- first story we're going to cover today, it's uh, largely the, the theme of the news section today is around activism. There is a lot of activism uh, on the ground, uh, on-site, if you will, activism uh, going on right now. The first story we're going to talk about is the Trans Mountain, well, much of it's about tra- much of it's about pipelines. Uh, oh. We're talking about a former Trans Mountain employee arrested for blocking pipeline uh, construction site. That was at the Kinder Morgan uh, uh, tank farm, which is a oil and gas storage tank area. He's a former engineer uh, named Romley. I'm going to make a mistake, but he's not here to correct me, so we'll have to forgive me here. Romley Sergovana. 
uh, was arrested Tuesday of this week uh, with 11 others for barricading the gate, quoted by him as saying, I worked for Trans Mountain's environmental department in the 1990s. If there is a tanker spill or a spill from the pipeline itself from Edmonton to Vancouver and down to Washington, the best Trans Mountain will be able to go even today is between 10 and 20 percent recovery. The rest will remain in the environment, damaging fish, birds, crabs, everything you can imagine. So that was a yeah. quote by the engineer yeah. who was arrested. Yeah, um, I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and lots of the images. And of, and of course, there's a lot of conversation about, well, well no, we have excellent cleanup. Well, your, yeah, your engineer definitely. doesn't agree. And, and the, I would say a lot of the environmental assessments wouldn't agree either. But um, it's I think it's very powerful to have somebody yeah. uh, who worked there saying, yeah, yeah I, oh, I know definitely. because I did that. And I'm telling you, it was 10 to 20%. Um, so the expansion would increase uh, capacity. The Trans Mountain Pipeline would ex increase uh, capacity uh, tripling it, um, carrying around 890,000 barrels a day from Alberta to BC coast. So if we had uh, a spill there, uh, say it was the full day, usually spills don't go on that long, although they have been known to and go on longer, uh, that would be 89,000 barrels in one day. Yeah. Right. Good grief. So uh, the project was that stuff is so persistent. That's the yeah. problem. And so the project was approved at the federal level. It's currently in review at uh, the Federal Court of Appeal. Six nations, uh, uh, sorry, six local First Nations in the cities of Vancouver, Burnaby, and the province of BC have challenged the project. Of course, we've been talking about mm -hmm. that on the program. That is ongoing. Uh, on the other side of the fence here, although conspicuously silent at the moment, uh, is the federal government, but them and the Alberta government very loudly uh, um, on the other side of that conversation. Yeah. Um, and so arrests uh, arrest continue at Burnaby Mountain protest uh, going on. Uh, this was uh, on Wednesday. Ten were arrested, uh, bringing the total, uh, total to 70 people arrested uh, as of yesterday morning. So I'm sure that is higher now. Uh, one of the uh, protesters... In including some grandmas. Including some grandmas. Yeah. And, and in fact, there frequently is. The grandma representation and people being ar arrested for nonviolent non protesting, yeah. uh, civil disobedience is respectably it's high. That. It's great to see that turnout, that activism. Yeah. We actually had uh, some of the uh, Raging Grannies on. Are you familiar with the Raging Grannies? It was a couple no. of years ago. Really? Uh, That's but they're, cool. <laughs> they're, a group of, uh, they're a group of older uh, women who go together well and, and join environmental I'm, protests. I'm going to be yeah. one of those. Yeah. I'm going to be one of those. Definitely. Uh, look them up. They're fabulous. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so Katie uh, Perfit, um, when addressing the crowd, uh, was quoted as saying, "Young people turned out to vote for Trudeau government because he promised real climate leadership. He yeah. promised that he would renew relations with Indigenous people and that he would take means to restore environmental laws the Harper government, Harper government dismantled." Uh, and of course, I take it to mean that she doesn't think that that has happened. Yeah. Well, he's got a ways to go. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I have. I have a huge side story I could go on on that, but we're really tight for time today, so I'm going to save it. But let's just say I'm putting on my skepticism hat. On okay, that. yeah. Uh, protesters are violating uh, a B.C. Supreme Court injunction not to stand within five meters of the storage terminal. So that's the basis for the arrests, not because uh, 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 there's been any violence mm -hmm. or any other criminality. Uh, it was just the... Uh, they they successfully got an injunction to 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 clarify that people shouldn't be doing that. Of course, nonviolent protest, civil disobedience is nonviolently and in a uh, let's say polite way breaking yeah. the law uh, in a in a non harmful way aside from possibly people's bottom lines. Uh, Kinder Morgan plans to twin its existing Trans Mountain pipeline, which it terminates in Burnaby, uh, one of the areas most resistant, yeah. understandably. Um, and it would ex sharply increase the number of oil tankers uh, uh, out of uh, Burard Inlet. 
so the uh, lawyer for Kinder Morgan, uh, Maureen Kaloran, uh, was quoted as saying, we have every indication based on the activities of the blockaders that this will continue. I would tend mm-hmm. to agree with you, uh, Maureen. Uh, they have made a con- uh, conscious choice to carry on. Uh, it's it's funny that she says that as if, you know, it's sort of like, well, they're getting arrested. It's yeah. their own fault. They're like, no, yeah. no, I'm pr- Maureen, yeah. I'm pretty, I hate to break it to you. I'm pretty sure they knew where they were going to get arrested. <laughs> I think that's kind of the so point. Too. Yep, exactly. I think that's kind of the idea. Uh, so daily protests are planned uh, until March 26th. It is currently the 23rd, meaning if you're in uh, BC or have means to get there and wish to participate, of course, we don't actively encourage people to do anything. We're yeah. simply informing oh. you of the opportunity. Uh, the deadline for Kinder Morgan to complete it clearing... Uh, uh, oh, sorry, that is the the uh, deadline for Kinder Morgan to complete clearing the trees for the expansion. So that at that point, the actual construction uh, mm-hmm. would begin. Uh, and our last story here, and this is actually where the opportunity comes in. So this is now from Lead Now. Uh, Defend the Water uh, is an event that is happening on the 23rd. Oh, look, it's the hey, 23rd. This is today. It's today. It's today. Today. So um, if you are uh, outside of the Toronto area, you'll have to excuse us for a moment. These are for folks that can act on it today. Um, there is a powerful Indigenous-led movement uh, rising up to defend the land, water, and climate. There has been for quite some yes. time. And on the 10th, the Coast Salish spiritual leaders and members raised a traditional Coast Salish uh, watch house near the pipeline route, which acts as a base for resistance to the project. 10,000 people in Metro Vancouver marched in solidarity on that day. And Indigenous leaders uh, and leaders and local residents are now uh, preparing to take action on the ground, which they are doing. So today, uh, Friday, March the 20th, 23rd protesters are delivering uh, uh, water from BC coastline to MPs offices to demand they stop pushing for the pipeline. So that uh, is uh, as it respects to Ontario uh, is today. If you're listening, it is uh, live Toronto. Sorry for our time shifted uh, uh, listeners here just for a moment. A uh, little time traveling for you. It is now live to the minute 1124 AM starting at noon. That is 35 ah, minutes from now. Right. You can uh, join folks at Carolyn Bennett's office, which is 40 Holly Street at Young and Davisville. Uh, and just a reminder here as well that this is for a uh, civil disobedience. Uh, if is not even part of today, this is just a respectful reminder. So if you're going here, uh, you know, bring your bring your heart. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is meant to be outreach to uh, politicians, some very gentle pressure. Uh, so this isn't, uh, we're not inviting people to come and be rude or disrespectful. Uh, this is to make sure that the, the let them know. politicians know that, that we're on them and paying attention to what they do. So if yeah. you're interested, 12 noon, Carolyn Bennett's office, I will forgive you. If you don't have the radio on your phone, I will forgive you missing the end of this program mm-hmm. to join that. You can also join people at 2 p.m. at uh, MP Peter Van Lowen's office, which is at 45 uh, Gristmill Road on Holland Landing in Hamilton, uh, at 4 p.m., you can uh, uh, meet MP uh, Philomena Tassi, which is 1686 Main Street. If you're in Guelph at 2.30, Boat River House side, uh, 16, uh, 116 Gordon Street. And if you're in Fergus at 2.30, uh, MP Michael Chong's office, which is at 200 St. Patrick Street East. So that is, uh, again, where you can go. We uh, in, uh to the degree that we ever encourage anyone to do anything, this is the one time when we encourage people to register again, to remind them mm-hmm. uh, this is about starting conversation, not uh, yelling at people. So exactly, bring your smiles, yeah. uh, but, but you know, go. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. 
All right, so we've just got uh, basically a couple of minutes now left before we have to uh, transition to our pre-interview. Of course, uh, just a reminder if you're just tuning in, Stefan uh, is taking over the second half of the show remotely today with a pre-record uh, with a, uh, the second half of the show uh, in conversation with our dear uh, show friend, friend of the show, we like to say, uh, Rob Shirky, the director, uh, founder of uh, Our Horizon. Um, mm-hmm. But I've got just enough time for a comment if you'd like, Nina, um, if you uh, do you have... Any oh. opinion on protesting, or <laughs> on will you protesting. be running off here oh, and joining I, any of these I, meetings? I would be, except I have to run off to my job, Ugh. which is at U of T, <clears throat> just down the street. But yeah, I was, I protested, I started protesting when I was a teenager, and I think we have to all be activists in some way. Yeah. If we if we let things happen, then we're being co-conspirators mm-hmm. in all, all well, honesty. Mm-hmm. And so doing get out there and do something. If it means something to you, again, comes back to meaning. Mm-hmm. Get out there and let people know. And these kind of protests are perfect because essentially all you're doing is is giving a voice to something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was just talking to uh, grade eight kids, a whole bunch of grade eight kids yesterday on Water Day. And I brought up Rachel Parent mm-hmm. from Vancouver, yes. yep. 12 years old, found out about GMOs, did some research, and she ended up on national television simply because she made her voice known. So I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there, but uh, Nina, I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. It was a real pleasure to have you in the studio. Uh, thank you thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Yeah. So again, uh, uh, Nina Montano, Canadian ecologist and author, and we will have a link to your website where people can look up your work. And if they're interested in the book, do that on the show post. But I'm having a finger wagged at me from the studio. Uh, we're going to go to our pre-record. So again, this is uh, my co-host, Stefan Hoster, who's uh, remote today, sending us a pre-record in conversation with show friend Rob Shirky uh, from Our Horizon. And I will let them take it away from you. They're are going to finish out the show. So this is me signing off for the rest of the the week. Have a good green week, folks, and uh, we'll see you all real soon. So this is Stefan. This is actually a fun, um, I was going to say like on assignment, Uh which seems like a little little overstating, but Mm -hmm. you know, I think overstating is more fun than understating. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm here with Rob Shirky, consistent friend of the show, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you just came back from a conference, um, and we're going to talk a a little bit about the conference and then sort of more unpack some of your takeaways and larger conversations that you think can come from this. Yeah. Uh, So can I just sort of explain to you the conference, can can I get you to explain to us what kind of conference you sort of were Sure. Uh, so my name, Stefan, is Rob Shirky. I'm Excellent. the executive director. There's that part, too. The who are you piece. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't even say. Yeah. <laughs> I just presumed that everyone was a big fan of Rob Shirky. So they just know Obviously. who Rob Shirky is. I like that presumption. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, I'm a lawyer based in Toronto. A few years ago, I launched a climate change nonprofit called Our Horizon. And what we're doing is we're asking governments uh, within Canada at, at the various orders of government and now increasingly more so abroad to pass legislation that would mandate climate change disclosure labels or warnings for gas pumps, similar to those you see on tobacco packaging, but maybe not necessarily as graphic. And recently, uh, perhaps some of your listeners have seen that Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all Mm. people, Governor Schwarzenegger. uh, And you went with the Batman intro instead of the Terminator intro. I should have gone Terminator. The... Exactly. Yeah, but do you have to now pay Universal Studios? I I think I'm going to presume that given that you are only okay at that, we don't. I think if you were better at it, maybe, but I think we're going to give ourselves an out. Fair. Um, I'm trying to continue with this feeling of insult that... (laughs) 
uh, yeah, so it's interesting. It's it's being picked up by uh, by I think some some influential people in climate circles more and more. So that's encouraging. Uh, but the reason I was I was in Europe um, was for this conference put on twice a year uh, by a European think tank called Friends of Europe, uh, and they run a program called uh, the European Young Leaders. Uh, and it's been going on for a few years. Last year they opened it up to uh, to people from outside of Europe. So they opened it up to people from North America. Um, the Middle East and North Africa, and to get into this program, and they draw people from a variety of sectors, so arts, technology, politics, um, activists, and so on, uh, you sort of have to be tackling uh, an issue of, of global importance uh, in an interesting new way, right? So that's kind of how I ended up being inducted into this program. Um, and I ended up in Warsaw, so I was there in the fall uh, in Tallinn, Estonia, and uh, and and just just this past week, I was uh, in Warsaw for for another one of these conferences. And one of the big takeaways that I'll I'll go into, and I don't know if this is um, reflective of the think tank or 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 if I can generalize and say is true of, of you know Europe uh, sort of a broader entity. Um, but there seems to be more of an openness there that I encountered to ideas that, that really challenge the status quo. Hmm. Um, and I, I see that, that that's not the case here. I see if, particularly at our federal level of government, uh, where we're pushing the carbon tax pretty hard, if you're proposing something that challenges that or falls outside of that, you know, good luck getting their ear. Um, but what I found there, even on my first night uh, when I was there in, in Tallinn, Estonia, um, I mean, I've been trying for two years now. I actually can't get a meeting with, with Catherine McKenna, our Minister of the Environment. Um, but like day one, I'm dining uh, next to the Minister of the Environment for Denmark. And then later I'm chatting with another Minister of the Environment from another country. Uh, and then later I'm chatting with, with the chief negotiator for climate change for the entire European Union. And I think like what an amazing approach to get activists and, and some politicians in the same room. And that doesn't seem to, to happen here. Well, it certainly seems like uh, w within the Canadian context, mm. there's a there's a there's a question about whatever might target specific industries, mm -hmm. the oil industry specifically. Mm -hmm. um, they they're very very dodgy about that. You know, there's a there's a clear intention to be like, well, we can find ways to solve climate change through carbon tax and other things which might indirectly impact some of these more some of these sort of natural resources, but it does seem like some that goes after directly the source. You know, there you know there's well, the Canadian government still is promoting pipelines, you know, yeah. like like there's a straight up the Canadian government still is their their foundational belief remains that fossil fuels are a part of the future of Canada, mm -hmm. which you know you and I obviously disagree on, mm -hmm. uh, and so I can I, I I think that probably leads to this sort of like you know could Catherine McKenna support that could support this uh, and if I could I mean yes she obviously could yeah but would the Canadian government policy support this yeah and and would and and I think that probably leads to some of this sort of difficulty. You know, and I think there's also a cultural piece, too, where uh, it could be something uniquely Canadian. We're a little too polite to offend the status quo, mm. you know? Um, it's all about pleasantries and, and being polite and social. And if, uh, and, and it doesn't have to be climate change, like pick any problem. If, if the status quo is something you're trying to transition away because it's not sustainable, um, there's going to be some interests that are impacted negatively that won't like what you're trying to do. 
and unless if you're willing to like, well, kind of offend some of those interests, and I don't mean offensive like, you know, we're not dropping f bombs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You're not just ins- you're not just randomly insulting them. No. You're not going at home and exactly. on this thing. You're. Um, but but upset them, um, then then we're not gonna we're not gonna actually transition away from the status quo in sort of a meaningful way. Right. And so I find I find in Canada, I think our approaches are actually quite timid. And it's funny. I was actually earlier today chatting with a colleague from the Center for Social Innovation, who who she tends to work in the private sector more, and she's saying something similar. So he, here I am advocating for a particular policy intervention. But she's saying, you know what? If what you're doing is a little too innovative, a little too bold, it's not going to find support here. Mm. Um, and and the one sad thing to that, and I'll sort of uh, mention this a little bit more later in the show, is I find myself now, uh, my thinking is shifting in terms of I've done a lot of advocacy across Canada. We've had some wins, but nowhere near, I thought, you know, where we could be at by now. And I'm thinking, you know what? Much like a lot of, say, artists that have to first make it uh, elsewhere, oh, yeah, right? totally. yeah. to then actually be, be embraced by Canada. I think I actually need to leave Canada mm. and set precedence elsewhere. And it's sad when you think of a lot of entrepreneurs that are spinning their wheels here, potentially you know, have some genius idea that could result in a great Canadian success story that we then export to the world. But if we're not willing to support some of those innovations because they're we're a little too timid, um, well, we lose that. People then leave. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I literally had that conversation today. I had a conversation mm. with an organization that was uh, that was looking to shift uh, Toronto policy specifically mm-hmm. uh, around accepting more sort of small homes uh, uh-huh. in in areas. And they were just uh, if you look up Tiny House Toronto, that's the organization that I was talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were sort of expressing that they 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 had to go. They also had to go uh, to New York and California mm-hmm. to find to find their sort of their wins a little bit. They, yeah. And they felt like they were sort of looking at these options as that Canada does a decent job of being an adopter. Mm-hmm. Once someone else moves, mm-hmm. but is but is is very very timid of being a leader. Basically, yeah. that the, the sort of this the culture here is if someone else has done it and it's worked, man, are we into it? Yeah. Uh, but if you but if it hasn't worked somewhere else, you know, look at uh, yeah, you mentioned music. Look at Drake. Yeah. Drake. Drake. Drake only succeeded because he succeeded externally and then brought it back to Toronto. Yeah. That rather than like you know he was he he was beloved in the states before he was beloved I think in Canada because of that sort of that sort of similar uh, experience. Yeah. And I want to say the same is is true of Chuck Lair. Now I'm I want to say I'm dating myself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know your go to is Drake, my go to is Chuck Lair. Right. But similar story. Yeah. Right? And and pick a sector and that seems to be. Uh, a common narrative. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, that. thank you so much. Uh, so we're going to do, basically, is do you want to tease what you want to get into, mm-hmm. and then we'll throw to a music break, and then we'll come back and we'll actually get into the meat of it. So what are people going to hear yeah. in the last 20 minutes? Well, so I'm pro-carbon tax, but... Mm. Oh, right, it's, it's one of these. This is a bold, yeah. bold statement. Um, I, think, I think there's some limits to what it can do, and... And I think that there might be some unintended consequences. And what frustrates me, and I'll dive into some of the research mm-hmm. and thinking behind this after the break, um, but I don't think what I'm about to sort of say is, is particularly groundbreaking or like, oh, wow, that was really observant. Hey, we want them to listen. It is going to be groundbreaking. <laughs> this is breaking news here <laughs> on the Green Majority. Uh, actually, I think it will be interesting in right. part because... Uh, when I do bring this up, particularly in circles that are like hardcore, this is the silver bullet, um, it's a carbon tax or, or nothing, um, 
to be critical of that, and, and given that that's what sort of we're pushing uh, federally here in Canada, if you start to voice something that runs counter to that, then you're you're not getting any airtime, mm. right? Um, so I actually think some of these some of these criticisms might be might be new and interesting for people. All right, so yeah. so Rob versus the carbon tax, uh, which he still supports, still but support, ha- still support. But there's an asterisk. To <laughs> yes, my there we go, and we'll yeah. find out what that asterisk is, uh, or the variety of asterisks, as I think that's the plural. There will be several asterisks. Excellent, uh, Dave, uh, producer for the show today, uh, or this this segment. Uh, let us know what we're listening to. Stefan, we are listening to the R&B and soul singer-songwriter Daniel Caesar out of Oshawa, Canada. This is the clean first half of a song called New Roses off his 2017 debut album, Freudian. And the female voice you'll hear on this track is Nevin Sinclair from Toronto. There are times I think about All right, and we are back here on The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or you're listening to us live, uh, or maybe on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across Canada, uh, maybe or even our podcast. There is so many options and ways to listen to us, and if you going to want to know more links and stuff of the conversations we had today, including interviews with Rob and everything else, you can go onto our website, greenmajority.ca, to find information about that. But to jump back in, mm. Rob, you were about to take down, while still supporting, <laughs> yes. a carbon tax. Yeah. It's one of those love-hate relationships. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which so, is where you want to be in life. It's really healthy. Uh, that's, that's my understanding. Yeah. yeah. So bring on the hate. All right. Here we go. Um, so I did my undergrad in business and economics, right? And I remember, this is in every single economics 101 textbook, the concept of inelasticity, which I'll go into in a second. But, but the example that is used over and over again for what is a good that is inelastic is gasoline, right? And so what does that mean, inelastic? It's this idea that um, uh, when there are changes in price, maybe the price might go up in a commodity, it might go down a little bit, Demand doesn't actually change that much in relation to changes in price. So they say it's inelastic, right? And so if if I go to gas up at the gas station, I'm used to paying $1.35 a liter. It's now at $1.45. Guess what? I'm still filling up my tank. Uh, next week, maybe it's down uh, to $1.25. I'm still filling my tank, right? So that's used over and over uh, in every single textbook in economics. And yet here we are introducing a policy where we say, oh, yeah, yeah, we just have to make uh, this commodity a little bit more costly and that'll change behavior. And yet, like a central tenet of, of Economics 101 is that gasoline doesn't really, demand doesn't respond to changes in price. So so I'm, I, I bring that up over and over and over, but everyone, I was gonna say turns a blind eye, but no, it's, it's what's a, a deaf ear? <laughs> is that it? No one's willing to listen, right? you know? And um, and it's interesting. And so I sometimes say, so so with that as a thought, Uh, feeding into this idea where sometimes it can actually have these sorts of unintended consequences, right? So the example that I often give comes from behavioral economics in uh, in Israel. This is a study that was done a little while ago. There were a bunch of daycares where they noticed that parents were coming late to pick up their kids. And so the contract was uh, Monday to Friday, you drop off your kids at a certain hour, you pick them up at a certain hour, and you're paying us a fixed sum for that the externality, the sort of hidden externalized cost, is now the daycare providers having to change their social schedule, they're, they're canceling their plans and so on, they're staying a little bit longer. So these economists, they said, okay, well, let's 
let's add a cost. So for, for every minute you're late, you know, we're now pricing this, right? Mm. Uh, you owe the daycare a certain sum. And traditional economic theory would suggest, well, you've now incentivized people to come more on time, right? Mm. But what do you think actually happened? I know the story. So you know the story. Should I, should I ruin it or should I let you? Well, I don't know. Listeners, do we have some sort of an e-poll that people can quickly... I don't think so. Okay, we're not there yet. No. Um, what ended up happening was actually the opposite. So people started to come later and behavioral economists observe that what kept them on time before or like a little bit late but not too late was this sense of moral accountability to a fellow human being and oh boy i'm going to be late I, I really shouldn't send these last emails at work i really need to get moving to the daycare the thinking then flipped to oh well i'm i'm paying for this i'm now justified in this behavior and behavioral economists observe that it sometimes shuts off these sort of moral more empathetic pieces of our humanity uh, that I think if we're to, to tackle this thing called climate change, we actually need to activate and engage. And so I asked myself, you know, here we are, we're about to add, let's say it's something like five cents a liter. It's something close to, I think it's four point something. Um, is someone going to say, oh boy, I really need to change my behavior? Or do we actually risk this this unintended piece where they might they might say, oh, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm paying for this harm. I'm now actually justified in continuing this behavior. Well, and I'm solving climate change by paying a little more. Like, like it's that concern, there's a certain concern for sure of, mm -hmm. like, uh, a half solution if it, if, it, if it only emboldens people to continue their actions is mm -hmm. no solution at all, right? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if it takes us an extra two, three years to hit to hit uh, you know, the tipping point that we're also scared about because we're hitting it or we're not in, in the actual have there needs to be such a massive societal shift that we really actually you know buying ourselves a year or two might be valuable but it's not mm -hmm. really going to really change the system and and does it communicate people have been reading more and more about um, the quality of measures that governments choose to pursue in the face of climate change if this is what we're really communicating is this is what we need, does it actually communicate the, the severity of the harm, right? Or does it actually kind of lull us in a sense of complacency? Do we collectively say, oh, you just need to pay a little bit more for this product and, and we'll be fine? Well, and we're also, we're, we're very adverse to actually putting a price on carbon that would solve, that would actually address the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a $30, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's one thing to say it's a $30 price on carbon is, you know, per price for CO2 per ton mm -hmm. um, is solving the problem. When you put $200, which is what most people think you should, yeah. you're having a very different conversation. Yeah. Um, because that's when things just, that goes, that would, that goes, that fundamentally shifts, I think, the economic conversation in a much different way than, than sort of this sort of small little amount that you're sort of seeing. And, and this, this phenomenon is called, um, it's moral licensing. That's one mm. of the terms that people use to give it. But there's even a more um, on-point example of this where, this is about a year and a half ago, polling was done uh, across Canada in different regions, you know, uh, West, Central, Eastern Canada, on support for a pipeline um, to, to bring bitumen tar sands uh, to Tidewater to then ultimately export overseas. And, um, and as, you know, as predicted, places like British Columbia, less for the pipeline, uh, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, a little bit more for it, and, and you know, Quebec, you know, maybe not as much for it, right? Um, the follow-up question to this poll was, if we were to implement a carbon tax nationwide, would you then be for or against the pipeline? And again, carbon tax, ostensibly, is to reduce interest in fossil fuels, right? Mm. Drum roll. <laughs> um, 
turns out with the introduction of a carbon tax, uh, three out of four Canadians and a majority in every single region actually supports building pipeline infrastructure. Which isn't that interesting, right? It's kind of having this unintended impact. Well, it, weirdly, I'm sure that poll actually was then pushed as the, like, that's exactly what Trudeau's argument is, mm -hmm. right? Is mm -hmm. the fact that a price on carbon should be enough to allow a pipeline to go through. Yeah. That's that's based, that, that is not based, that is actually straight He's up the argument. transparent about it. Yeah. 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 And, and that, that, we, that we won't get a price on carbon if we don't let the pipelines pipeline exactly. through. It's a very direct one-to-one -one correlation. And I think it's even funny, even before they approved this pipeline, there was this whole bag of goodies directed to the West Coast, which again, I think fits into this moral licensing piece. Um, people will challenge me though, and this came up actually in this conference that I was at last year. They say, well, Rob, uh, BC implemented a carbon tax and, and consumption of gasoline did go down, right? Uh, how do you then reconcile that with hmm. some of what you're saying right now? And that was actually studied um, by a couple of economists. Um, one of them was from Ivy. I'm trying to remember if I wrote down the info. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I think the other one was from, from the University of Ottawa, uh, Dr. Schofila. And, uh, and I read the report, uh, but it was also summarized in, in a Globe and Mail article titled uh, BC Drivers Eased Up on the gas uh, after the carbon tax. And this is a quote from one of the researchers. He says, in general, people don't respond a heck of a lot to gas prices. So what I was saying to you before, hmm. he says, this tax shifted the demand curve. It was the policy that made people change their behavior. So instead of the demand curve having a steep slope where uh, price going a little bit higher means you, know, you go down that slope and you see a reduction in demand, this inelastic sort of straight kind of up and down slope was actually itself shifted. Uh, and the article goes on to say, the researchers believe the underlying reason for the price hike to benefit the environment is the reason why consumers change their driving behaviors. So it wasn't so much, aha, this is now five cents more expensive. Rather, it was, it was the rationale behind the policy itself. Mm. And I often say, you know, with these climate change disclosure labels that I'm pushing for or warnings, um, they kind of are intended to draw on our sense of empathy, like take these hidden costs and quite literally make them visible. And I think, you know, did that particular policy indirectly, in, indirectly engage this sort of aspect of our own humanity that I'm trying to engage more directly? I think there's something to it, but try and have that conversation mm. with people in government and, and they're not listening. So I, I, I'm Kind of curious of a, a quick understanding check, mm -hmm. which is you've been talking about uh, gasoline specifically versus sort of carbon more generally. Yes, um, and obviously your your uh, intervention specifically focuses on gasoline use, and in specifically focuses on individuals' choices to use gasoline. Yes, versus you know we're not you're you're very you're focusing on a particular subset of people and a particular subset of things. That's correct, which is sort of leading to this this understanding. Yeah, and it's and it's a cautionary note on mm. that, right? And again, you know, what we started this segment out with was, yeah, I hope I don't get any people like, ah, carbon taxes, like, what's wrong with you? We need one. Don't speak against it. Right. I'm not. We actually do need one, and mm -hmm. that's clear. Uh, whatever the mechanism, be it a, a cap-and-trade regime, I tend not to get lost in the weeds between the two, and I'm not interested in having that debate, which is, like, whatever the selection we're going with, yes, we do need to price carbon. Right. Um, but let's just be a bit more honest about it, that it's not the be-all and end-all, that it does have some drawbacks, some limitations, 
and and let's have a conversation. Let's be open to what are some complementary policies to then round this approach out a little bit more to actually result in this in this shift that we need to undertake. Well, and and I think you, you've hit on something that I've thought about a lot. And I, if I, if I'm taking us too far off where you want to go, please mm. feel free to steer us back. Okay. But briefly, I want to get on this one piece, which is I think that one of the main reasons why we see such pushback from policymakers mm-hmm. is that. The the things is the parts of it's that it's that the elastic goods mm. that a would the inelastic goods the inelastic mm-hmm. goods whose price point will increase mm-hmm. with the carbon tax mm-hmm. things like food mm. um, and and clothing and stuff like that yep. are the major barriers for these types of these types of programs like mm-hmm. a like a two hundred dollar carbon tax what's scary I think to policy yeah. is the concept of food being twice as expensive it's the things that these these individuals that you're talking about would be hit in the specific ways, right? Yeah. Where you have to buy gas because you know you you you're you're, you're commuting from an hour away, so you're going to be mm-hmm, doing that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there's a ver- and so if you if if it's a, if it's sort of being forced on you, you might not react so positively. Yeah. You have to buy food, so if the price goes up, you have to you have to pay you have to heat your house. Yeah. These are sort of these inelastic personal goods. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. don't people I don't think people are really reacting too much to the concept of sort of the more general general sort of like, you know, business changing their being incentivized sort of stuff. I don't, I don't think yeah. you and I or the lecturate feel that in the same way no, exactly. versus the fact that a lot of this car the, the fear on on a, on a truly correctly priced carbon tax mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. directly connects to this concept of inelastic goods price increasing it's true because that's a pinch that people will feel in their pocketbook and that then translates into uh yeah some some people are going to be upset with whoever that particular politician is that is responsible for that and then that actually opens up, you know, the stage for the the Doug Fords of this world to capitalize on a lot of that. Well, you know, your your heating bill is going up, and we're going to repeal this this tax uh, or cap and trade regime. Um, you know, like it's it's there's a real political risk, I suppose, in doing that. Um, all the more reason, though, to then take a, a more holistic approach. Um, and and I think just you know, my main point, we can we can talk about you know which policy interventions we need, which ones have some different costs them, and so on. But I think what frustrates me the most is uh, an unwillingness on the part of, and and I'm saying the federal government, but I've engaged the province and and municipalities across Canada as well. And a theme I see is there's an unwillingness to actually sit down and listen to what an individual outside of government has to say. Mm. Um, And that's what I find frustrating. Um, Because if you think about it, there's what, 37, 38 million Canadians? Mm I mean, even if you've got your PhD in climate policy and, and in your employ, whoever, you know, whichever politician you are, at whichever order of government, you have all this expertise, um, there will be some people out there that might actually have some insights, that might actually have something uh, of value to offer. And, and what I've definitely seen across Canada is this tendency to um, a lot of consultations being sort of perfunctory. Uh, it's not sincere. There isn't. There, there's actually not much humility, I'd say, in government. There's a bit of arrogance too. It's we know what's best. Okay, we've got to engage in this consultation. Now we're listening to you. Your five minutes are up. Now we're listening to the next person. I'm looking at my watch. When is this thing done? Right. Um, I, I think. I think what would be nicer is if we recognized, hey, there's a lot of people in this country with a lot, a lot to offer. And, and let's be open-minded about some of their proposals. Mm. And, and to bring this back to my experience uh, in Europe, and again, I, I'm, 
it could just be that this particular organization that, that I was there uh, as, as a part of, you know, isn't, isn't representative, but the experience that I had in there was like incredibly refreshing. Hmm. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a, that's a fascinating sort of piece of this, which is sort of, you know, how different it felt. And I, and I do think mm. there's a, I do think there's a, I think there is a, a pretty, a lot to be said about the, the feeling of, and I think this is clear, actually, you see this in, all, in many per parts of, of our Canadian government. You, mm -hmm. you know, I think of the pipeline proposal things, mm -hmm. the number of, no one's, it, no one feels like they've been listened to mm -hmm. after those things. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the night of duly consulting or consulting people, uh, yeah. you know, it seems to be, Whatever we're doing does not appear to be working. Yeah. I guess is it doesn't. And even I had this thought even around uh, around around some of these uh, these decisions about how it never felt like the argument was actually on merit. Mm -hmm. it, actually, it was around the NEB. It was around the NEB and Energy East, mm -hmm. which was there was a conversation at one point around that, in which once basically um, one side was arguing that there should be full cost accounting mm -hmm. for the for the scale of climate change, mm -hmm. and and Energy East and it was saying no, basically, mm -hmm. and the government was just trying to side between those two, and in my mind, there was never really a consideration around actually understanding that like there wasn't a number where mm -hmm. it was going to be okay or not okay mm -hmm. it was all politics I see. like I, I like i don't think the i don't think the conversation in the canadian government was ever do we think that it that the energy east will lead to xyz mm -hmm. or do we do we disagree i don't i don't think it was a, a true weighing of decisions it was entirely yeah. a decision on well if we say it should pass a climate test it won't mm -hmm. we know that mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. should we ask it to try yeah, and asking to try was a way to say no, or or, or and, and it, there was never on e either side there was never actually a conversation of is this a conversation? It wasn't a conversation. It was yeah. a decision on should we try make it try to make it pass? If so, we're saying no. If not, we're saying yes. Yeah, and that's the only conversation. And and what are the consequences then of of failing to really truly meaningfully consult? Um, we'll say let's say like the electorate or people on the mm. ground. Uh, people become disengaged, people become cynical. Like if, and, and listen, I've gone to Toronto City Hall over and over and over. I'm now at the point where I'm just done with Toronto City Hall. Like mm. I am not setting foot into that building again because I feel excluded. I feel as though there's this definite, um, they, they don't take uh, opinions of, of citizens seriously and it's mm. perfunctory and they're all looking at their watches. And at a certain point, you say, well, you know what, my, I've got better things to do with my time, right? right. So then fewer people trust in government. Uh, politicians, I don't know what the trust, there's always these studies on. It's, it ends up being like pretty close to the bottom yeah. of our faith in, in politicians. People then are less likely to vote, to be engaged. And collectively, a society loses, right? Like, I think, I think we'd be doing a lot better off uh, if we did listen to each other. And, and frankly, that's a lesson that I think we can all work, mm. learn. Oh, yeah. uh, and it does take... I think a degree of vulnerability too, because if if you're truly authentically considering and listening to another party and, and really trying to understand their views, um, yeah, you've got to be a little vulnerable. You've got to admit, you know what? I actually don't know everything, um, and I'm curious to hear what what you have to say. And maybe maybe in this in this meaningful exchange of information, the end result might be that much better, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm both listening to you, but also looking at my watch, uh -huh. uh, which means we're coming up to the end of the show. Uh, any last thoughts? Anything to any, any throwaway comments? Um, I'm incredibly offended that you were staring at your watch the whole time. This is my last time on the Green Majority. <laughs> what, what on earth do I even bother? I don't even have a watch. Oh, even, are you playing yeah. me out now? Or are you, are you yeah. cutting me? Yeah, we're done. I'm being played <laughs> off. Okay, I see. 
Uh, thank you so much, Rob. Yeah. Uh, as always, I look forward to your return. This Cheers. has been <laughs> this has been the Green Majority on CAU Data Nine Point Five. So sincere, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> have a great evening, everyone. This has been the Green Majority. Uh, have a great week. See y'all this real soon. <laughs> <laughs>